Hello and welcome to the Not Just Any Cancer podcast with me, Catherine Bouvier. So today I am meeting with uh, Mr. Andreas Procalius, who is a liver transplant and HPB surgeon, but he's also the clinical director of the King's Liver Unit. Um, and I'm delighted to uh, meet with him today, the first time for me. So thank you so much uh, for joining. Um, thank you for having me. Oh, wonderful to have you. And um, I guess what we want to talk about is the role of the surgeon within this neuroendocrine multidisciplinary team. Um, you know, everyone hears that surgery is the best option no matter what across you know, all cancer types, but it's not always possible, is it? But, you know, maybe I can first off, you know, ask you, what is your role? How do you see your role um, within the sort of neuroendocrine multidisciplinary team? Uh, uh, thanks, uh, uh, Catherine. Uh, as, as I said earlier, thank you for having me. So uh, I, I absolutely immensely uh, enjoy my involvement with management of patients with neuroendocrine tumors, gastrointestinal uh, uh, neuroendocrine tumors, to be more specific. Uh, 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 what you said in the beginning is quite right, for there is a, a long-standing dictum uh, that surgery, when applicable, uh, gives the best chance of cure from solid uh, uh, tumours. And uh, to a certain extent, uh, this is true for neuroendocrine tumours. However, as you uh, clearly alluded, uh, owing to the indolent and uh, uh, lengthy in-time process, uh, by the time that we... Uh, diagnose neurodegree tumors, uh, surgery uh, uh, is not always feasible or, uh, I would say, desirable. So the surgeon uh, is an integral part of the MDT where a, 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 an, a, an armamentarium of various treatments uh, is integrated, sometimes staggered and once follow the others. Uh, yeah. And the chief aim is to provide the patient the best chances of long-term survival and the best quality of life uh, in managing their neuroendocrine tumours. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, the quality of life issue is, is so massive around surgery, isn't it? And, you know, that's another question that was kind of on my list, really, was, you know, I'm sure you're very capable of doing huge amounts of very complex surgery, but even if it was technically possible, if you saw something that was technically possible, what influences your decision? to suggest moving forward with that. And I guess I'm alluding to, you know, what will be the consequences of that surgery for the patient? Will it affect their quality of life in a way that you feel that that surgery wouldn't be appropriate? Or what goes through your mind in terms of sort of saying, I think we should go for it, apart from patient choice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you, Catherine. And that uh, that is a very important uh, uh, aspect of when you're weighing your surgical intervention, which starts by the time uh, 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 initially, but the discussion in the MDT, and then when you meet the patient for first time. We know that if we resect the entire gut, for example, we'll be able to remove all the tumor, but then this is something that we don't uh, uh, do because what uh, uh, we always balance is the uh, uh, the, the goal for long-term survival with, with a quality of life that is acceptable. Mm. And uh, we have developed now, uh, uh, particularly the specialist MDTs, the nuances to know where to stop. 
often that decision uh, has to be done interoperatively. But uh, 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 as I said earlier, the involvement with the management, the multidisciplinary management of the neuroendocrine uh, patients uh, uh, has led to an understanding that there are more than one ways to treat the patient. Surgery is, uh, uh, um, as we said earlier, uh, the best uh, option when applicable, but it has to stop when uh, actually uh, gives the patient a, a, a lifelong uh, disability. So, uh, uh, so we would never uh, uh, envisage for the sake of a completion uh, or for a questionable, uh, sometimes oncological act, outcome, to sacrifice quality of life. No, absolutely, because I think sometimes you do see, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but we do see a slight lack of of, um, sort of management of expectations of kind of post-surgical recovery times, um, especially around things like Whipples and stuff like that, you know, and I think think we've still got a bit to do, do you not, in, in terms of sort of managing patients' you know, expectations as to how long it might take them to recover and how different we all are, right, in terms indeed, of indeed. our recovery time. Indeed. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, again, as I said, we, we are now uh, are far more educated, uh, A, in the neuroendocrine tunus and B, in the evolving uh, needs of the patients, uh, particularly uh, in uh, in the setting of neuroendocrine tumors, which are tumors, as I classically say to my patients, that more often patients live with rather than die of. Uh, so uh, the the appropriate judgment and preparation of the recovery time of, you mentioned the Whipple's procedure, which is one of the major operations that the human body can have, uh, uh, has evolved. Uh, we have a better understanding of uh, how patients uh, might respond, uh, how to address specific, short, medium, sometimes long-term issues which relate to the adaptation of the body and the patient itself to the whipples, uh, to the post-whipple status. And this is start, something that we start doing from the first time that we meet the patient. So we, uh, we try to educate them. We have an extensive literature so they know what, what uh, uh, potentially to expect. And we brief them for uh, the entire spectrum of the eventualities uh, post uh, post And as the years have gone by, we have become better and better in doing them. <laughs> and don't and don't and don't actually uh, spoil the, uh, spoil the quality of life uh, uh, of the patients because we apply the principle that we uh, uh, discussed previously. Okay, we, when when uh, we're risking, for example, somebody to have uncontrollable diarrhea uh, uh, after whipples, we don't go to those surgical planes that we know that can lead to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess, you know, reviewing that patient is part of your influence, isn't it? So really understanding comorbidities, I suppose, as well. Absolutely. Um, the issues that I guess, you know, we all have as humans. It's not just neuroendocrine that any one person might have. And, you know, we obviously advocate massively for patients at least to be reviewed, if not in person, in paper by a multidisciplinary team with expertise. Um, you know, and that's something we push for across the UK. And, um, you know, where we've got the specialist centres. And, and part of that as well is that I know that patients can sometimes be presented back to you. So initially you might say, I can't, I don't think this is the right choice for whatever those reasons are, but they might go away and have some treatment or 
you know, tumors might, you know, respond to various therapies, et cetera, medical therapies and come back to you. What, I mean, is, is that something that you, you see quite a lot or, or does that uh, happen? Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, we, we said from the beginning that often when we diagnose uh, uh, neuro patients with gastrointestinal and neuroendocrine tumors, the disease that is metastatic is quite, uh, you know, uh, it tells the scans tell a different story from the patient uh, sometimes. And this is uh, from the uh, nature of the disease that, as we said, is indolent and often does not produce uh, significant symptomatology for the patients to seek medical advice. Now, uh, uh, the, uh, the approach, and that is the fascinating thing with neurodegrant tumors, we have so many interwoven uh, uh, avenues of treatment which are, are from uh, nuclear medicine to uh, uh, um, chemotherapy to analogs to surgery and back and forth uh, in all uh, in all these uh, treatment options uh, we can uh, we can we are uh, when able to apply the best uh, uh, first treatment uh, uh, appropriate for the patients when we first meet them uh, uh, then if they do present with a response, then we always, uh, because their management is through the multidisciplinary specialist net MDT, we always ask the question, what is the next step? Is now the disease uh, has a surgical uh, a solution to it, or at least surgery can be part of a more global solution, which is more commonly uh, what we uh, end up uh, doing. And uh, we approach every patient, as I said, in a multidisciplinary fashion with an open mind. Are you ready? Uh, uh, thank you, Catherine. Uh, as we, we said again, uh, at the time of presentation, most patients with gastroenteropancreatic neurodegenerative tumors will be uh, diagnosed uh, uh, when the disease is uh, at least radiologically quite advanced. Uh, so, and this is the absolute fascinating aspect of the neuroendocrine uh, uh, specialist meeting. We have a number of uh, 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 treatments available for various specialties that we can choose from. And when surgery is not applicable uh, at first, then uh, uh, we, uh, pr uh, we proceed with the most appropriate uh, systemic treatment. Now, because we, we, uh, uh, we have developed to work in such a uh, uh, coherent fashion, the question of, uh, let's visit again the issue of surgery, uh, if there is a response, is always part of the questions asked in the NetMDT. And uh, we always try, uh, and says there is one of the tools that we use, to see how the various types of treatments can be used to A, prolong survival, and B, uh, 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 guarantee quality of life. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's important for people to realise that, it, you know, if you're within that expertise, you'll continually be reviewed for all those different options. And, and that's absolutely being part of that team, isn't it? And yes. having that team look after your care. I guess with that, I have to ask the question, which is a, perhaps a little bit controversial in our world, is, is the idea of transplantation as an option. Uh, uh, thank you, You've touched a, a, a very sensitive core in my uh, surgical well-being because I've been and people in the field they know that they have been advocating for the reapplication of transplantation 
uh, as management, uh, ultimate management of patients with unresectable uh, metastasis from neonatal tumor. A bit of history there. We used to do transplantation uh, up to 20 years ago, but A, we didn't have the understanding and the knowledge to select the appropriate patients. And uh, some other developments have made the immunosuppression more able to be tailored for the needs of this patient. So uh, I would say for your audience that we are in the rather fortunate uh, uh, position to announce that the wider transplant community in the UK has accepted the, uh, 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 irresectable metastasis uh, uh, to the liver of neurodegrant tumors as an indication for transplant. We, are expect, we have already worked nationally to have a national specialist MDT where we review uh, cases before we put forward. And we are hoping as a country to move forward with the application of transplantation in clinical practice, uh, uh, probably from the beginning of the summer of this year. Okay, and that comes with so, a caveat, I guess, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, there will be there'll be such a specific group that, that you would be able to put indeed, forward, indeed, and, indeed. Um, we have to, again, that manage expectations that it is indeed, indeed, never be a free for all in terms of, you know, no. the person. Uh, and and, and uh, I would say to your audience that uh, uh, transplantation is not a walk in the park, first of all, uh, uh, mandates uh, an organ to be available, etc. So we, uh, and that is the role of the specialist in the national MDT, we have to identify those patients on which the risk of transplantation, because transplantation is a complex and massive procedure, mm-hmm. is outweighed uh, from the benefit that the person will have. So we are far more uh, nuanced, educated, have a better understanding of both the immunosuppression and the transplant process at now, and also the, uh, our understanding with neuroendocrine tumors is better than it was 20 years ago. So uh, I want to assure patients that the ones that will be selected is because we feel that we truly benefit uh, uh, in terms of their quality of life and survival from transplantation. But for those that will say no, that means that we would be absolutely certain that the risk of transplantations outweigh any benefit that uh, the individual might have. And uh, as we uh, uh, as we have done with all treatments, we have a very close relationship and open relationships with our patients, and is a, uh, and is an educative dialogue uh, all the time. So we we'll, uh, uh, make every effort for all the issues to be understood in the process. No, thank you. That's, you know, interesting. And I think really important information, you know, to share out to our community as well. Um, Just a couple more things that I guess cross my mind now, just again, talking about your choice or your advocating for surgical procedures to take place. We hear about inoperable all the time in in the neuroendocrine world. Um, And I know that, uh, you know, there will be influences on that. And when does that become kind of a, a permanent thing like inoperable is is just inoperable and is that about where the tumor is or or the patient's health or again is this about the surgery causing more problems than not having surgery uh, i would say i would say you you, you answer the question yourself it's, a, <laughs> it's 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 a combination of both right so uh, uh um uh, surgery has to be anatomically feasible 
and oncologically appropriate. There is absolutely no point to start from the second uh, 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 prerequisite to do for me to do uh, to remove some of the tumor when I know that it won't have an impact on survival. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. It's, it's clear and, that really. uh, so the oncological aspect is is very important. We we do surgery when we envisit but without sacrificing quality of life, we have achieved either a complete removal of all the tumor or tumors in a patient's body, or at least a maximum debulking, as we say, more than 80, 85% of the tumor burden. So that's the oncological aspect. And then is the anatomical aspect, and on that I will put the patients at general health, etc. We know that if we remove all the abdomens from the body, uh, will remove all the tumors, but that is not compatible with life. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. So, so I, I wish it was. I wish you could just throw yeah. it all out in the So, so uh, where, where they, are, they are major, to summarize for your audience, major insurmountable anatomical considerations and not a clear oncological outcome, this is when we will continue to say the disease remains beyond the surgical remit. Okay. Yeah, that, that's very clear. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I, just one thing, I mean, just a, a general question, I guess, you know, we're seeing, we, we're hoping to publish along with, you know, Prof Ramage and, and a whole group that have been working on this incidence and prevalence data. And one of the things that have come out of this, of this piece of work is, is the increase in, in incidence of neuroendocrine kind of since 1995, I think to 2018 is, is as close as we can get to the latest data. But it shows sort of a 371% increase compared to other cancers, which showed a 116% increase. So it, it's quite a huge sort of increase in incidence in our community. You know, is, has your workload increased uh, yeah, yeah, uh, in the neuroendocrine yeah. field? So, uh, uh, um uh, risking uh, to uh, uh, to disclose how old uh, and, <laughs> and ripe I am, <laughs> uh, I do uh, uh, I do recall that almost twenty years ago when we started uh, with John Ramos looking neuroendocrine patients, we had two or three patients a week to discuss, or every other week. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, and over the last uh, two decades, we have seen an absolute explosion on the number of patients that come through our services. Now we have a dedicated uh, weekly uh, MDT uh, that goes through 30 patients, 25 to 30 patients. And this is uh, after serious uh, pre-MDT preparation. So uh, the, the uh, and no one has really understood why we have that increase of that magnitude in neuroendocrine tumors. Perhaps uh, is a combination of uh, more access to imaging, uh, 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 better understanding, more awareness of the diagnosis. A lot of the patients uh, in the past which would have had neuroendocrine tumors probably were treated for surrogate okay. conditions or anything. Yeah, 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 sure. And, and even the pathology was not very clearly understood. So even patients that they had resection, there would be, you know, the neuroendocrine aspect of it uh, uh, would have been would have been missed. But even accounting for all this, it remains. A, a quite a mystery why we see so many neuroendocrine such a such a pace of increase of uh, neuroendocrine tumors in the last thirty years. 
Yeah, and we need to address it really, you know, to make sure we've got the infrastructure and that's certainly work yeah. we're doing with our Bridging the Gap campaign, you know, to get a clear pathway, getting all patients reviewed by an MDT. But you guys need that infrastructure too, don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. Both, you know, we have to have NHS support for that. Um, thank you, Andreas. Just, just one final question. Please. Um, I guess because... Um, I'm thinking of questions that come in from our community, I suppose. And uh, there will be a group of patients who have um, carcinoid heart disease as part of their um, diagnosis and part of their syndrome. And, um, you know, they may well have liver metastases. Well, they will have liver metastases, of course. Um, and, and there's a, a, a sort of a, a question sometimes around the sequence of, of whether to get, you know, heart surgery to, to sort out your valves or to get your liver section sorted and and I know that can be a concern and and I wondered if you had any sort of views on that yeah uh, surgical perspective uh, thank you for this particular uh, 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 for this particular example and I'll I, I, I make a comment general at the end uh, for this particular because we seek to uh, repair the uh, 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 the carcin the valve the trichopsid valve which is uh, the one that uh, suffers most commonly. And the reason is very simple. Even if the, uh, uh, the uh, abdominal surgery is uh, straightforward, uh, sort of speak, we need, a ver- we need the patient's cardiorespiratory reserves to be in tip-top condition. So it would be bad practice to start with the liver. Uh, we tend to, that's the medically sound thing, to uh, uh, resolve the carcinoid heart, usually with heart surgery, and then uh, proceed uh, to a liver se- to liver surgery or abdominal surgery. If that if, if there if there is a significant uh, uh, sort of hormone secretion, etc., we can temporize uh, the liver metastasis with ablations to go through the heart surgery, recover, and then go through the abdominal surgery. So in general, we go uh, the principles of which which side will be addressed first is the one that uh, uh, is the more uh, that, that, that is re- that this, uh, the sorting out is required for the rest of the treatments to be safe. And the, uh, the second thing is the one that causes them the maximum of the problems. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it, really? And I, and I guess one of the, you know, one of the issues we're still dealing with is, is, patients that are being operated on not potentially you know um abdominal surgery or liver or pancreatic surgery but for other things and and not having that syndromic cover um is still an educational gap would you would you agree with that absolutely absolutely uh 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 uh, if you even if now if you speak to medical students as neuroendocrine tumors uh even you know final year medical students will look at you with a bit uh, of a, a quizzing uh, uh, sort of uh, look in their eyes. So uh, we have a, l- a lot to do to uh, uh, to educate our, our primary care, basically, to suspect the neuroendocrine tumors, our GPs, but also our general medical colleagues and general surgical colleagues uh, of, the, of the pathologist. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, but I think uh, that is, it is being addressed. Uh, uh, the radiologists have now, developed the protocols or in a scan they can spot a lesion that has the flavor of a neuroendocrine tumor a lot better than before but uh, you know uh, we have to do a lot uh, for private uh, uh, sorry for primary uh, care and uh, the 
the more general uh, clinicians in a hospital environment, the general yeah. surgeon and the you know and the general medical consultant to raise the awareness. Yeah, and to arm the patient community, I yeah. guess, all they need, you know, to, to say, yeah. you know, I need cover for my for my surgery and here's yeah, indeed. the regime that I need. So yeah, indeed. Uh, that was fascinating. Um Thank you so much um, for for joining me today and for taking the time out of what I'm sure is an incredibly busy schedule. So I'm really grateful uh, to you for joining us. Uh, Catherine, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And and, uh, congratulations again for uh, the great work uh, 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 you are doing nationally to to push what we, you know, uh, all of us have close at heart. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. enjoyed this podcast please subscribe to not just any cancer series wherever you listen to your podcast and please do leave a review